0: Welcome to the DLA Piper Tech Law podcast series in preparation for the European Technology Summit 2021 to be held on the 5th of October. My name is Kit Burden, and I'm a London-based partner at DLA Piper and global co-chair of the firm's technology sector. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Fry. Hannah is gonna be the keynote speaker to open our Tech Summit on the 5th of October, and we're particularly pleased to have her both for this podcast, but also for the summit itself. As many as you will know, Hannah is a very well-known academic, a broadcaster, and, in fact, frequent speaker on many topics, particularly relating to mathematics, data, and its influence upon human society and the way we interact with each other. You may also know that Hannah is particularly well-known in current times for having effectively predicted through the power of maths the inevitability of some of the, the pandemics that we're now going through. But Hannah, enough for me. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the areas that you're focusing on just at the moment?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't predict was quite... <laughs> I think the power I, of maths. Well, yeah. I mean, we certainly weren't the only ones who saw it coming, right? I think there was a lot of people shouting from the rooftops for a number of decades um, before COVID nineteen hit. Um, but yes, I think that's a that's a pretty good summary. I um I am um, actually just got a promotion, so I'm now a professor in the mathematics of cities uh, at UCL. So um, really, I am interested in all kinds of things that involve patterns in human behavior and particularly patterns that move around in space and time, mm-hmm. um, which sounds quite vague, but there's, that means that I can—I uh, feel like I've got the excuse to look at a number of different setups. So things like shopping, um, things like uh, like diseases, but also things like terrorism, things like burglaries, uh, things like rioting, and they sound like <laughs> they sound like uh, I'm being—the uh, phrase I like—is intellectually promiscuous, which I am. <laughs> <laughs> but actually at their heart, they all have these these very similar um, techniques required of them, which is a, it's all about really geospatial data and patterns of human behavior that move around in space and time.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's the way in which we can now harness data to, to be able to predict the way that people are going to behave and obviously draw, draw the conclusions about how we should be reacting accordingly.
1: Yeah, exactly that. I think it's partly about making predictions and uh, and forecasts and knowing where the limits of those things are. And I think it's also partly about really understanding how um, how different environments impact different people mm-hmm. in, in a slightly different way.
0: OK, well, taking that point about predictions, um, I think back in, I think it was 2019, you did a talk entitled, um, Should Computers Rule the World? I think for those who haven't seen it, I think it's um, it's on YouTube. Um, And I really enjoyed listening in on that because you went through some of the, um, both the capabilities, but also limitations of the use of algorithms and artificial intelligence and gave some of your views of what the future could be based Mm -hmm. upon the, the application of those types of technologies. Obviously, at the moment, we're living in a very uncertain world. I don't even think we could say a post-pandemic world yet, but one where um, at the same time we've got all of the uncertainties resulting from COVID, we've also got the very disruptive impact of new technologies, and in particular, uh, artificial intelligence upon the way that we interact with each other and companies work, and in fact, the way that society will operate. But given what you were thinking back in 2019 and now where we are now, What would you say were the key challenges for us associated with with AI in particular?
1: Well, it's funny, actually, because I I sort of think that the big thing that's changed or should have changed since 2019 to now is that we should now be living in a world where people really understand exponential growth, (laughs) um, given (laughs) given what's happened with the pandemic. But I also think, actually, um, there does still seem to be this, I don't know, I think that people sort of remain a little bit slow to catch on to that idea. There's this brilliant book, um, a new book by Azim Azhar called The Exponential Gap, and it's, it's essentially about how technology is increasing exponentially, um, which I think anybody who works in the, tector, uh, in the sector um, realises, but that society is sort of trundling along at this kind of linear, um, on, on this linear slope. And and thus, as a result, the gap between what technology can do and what society expects technology can do is is ever increasing. And I really think that's sort of the position that we're in at the moment. Um, And so as a result, I think that there has been, uh, you know, since 2019, there has been a good couple of years of sort of exponential change. And I don't think that society has really caught up all realize just how profoundly different the world of uh the the coming 10 years will be from from the world of the the previous 10 years um i think that a couple of things have shifted in people's view of technology in that time i think particularly the question around bias has changed slightly i think that i think the world now realizes that um, there are these uh, profound problems with inherent biases and how they are baked into, uh, you know, decisions that are made by algorithms and uh, baked into data that that, um, that 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 is collected. I still think people sort of imagine that you can just do a bit more data and do a bit more <laughs> AI and it will fix those problems. I still think we haven't kind of got around to this idea that uh, while bias is partly a data problem, It's also much, much bigger problem than that, um, and not one that you can fix with just a few matrix manipulations. But I also think that some of the struggles that the AI is having at the moment and that people in data science are having at the moment with that, that how much of the firebreaker, how much of the human should you leave in the loop? Actually, these are quite old questions, right? You know, Mm -hmm. if you think about... um, uh, nuclear power stations they were having these exact same conversations about how much should be automated and how much should a human being control you know back in sort of the 70s and 80s right um or uh, aircraft is the other really great example about autopilot and how much should, should a, a human pilot still have the right or um authority i guess to overrule the machine and there is actually there's a really great joke um <laughs> About two minutes in, I'm already telling you a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really great joke about also a pilot that I really like, which is that um, for the perfect flying team, what you need is a computer, a pilot, and a dog. Uh, so the computer is there to fly the machine, uh, the human is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to bite the human if they ever try and
0: touch them. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one. I remember yeah. it well.
1: I love it, I love it. Um, and I think that actually, broadly speaking, if you, you know, humans were this, this mess of noise and inconsistency, and like, we don't make consistent decisions, we're very bad at, at sort of at, at, at making clear logical decisions. And I think that if you build in automation, actually you can go some way to improving that, but it's the edge cases, right? It's kind of like all of the little problems um, around the corners, that are, uh, that are so difficult to ensure mm. that you're, you're getting um, that system right.
0: And I guess get kind a of disproportionate amount of the press as well.
1: Yeah, of course they do. Of course they do. And and there's this question of scale there too, right? If you have a, a system that is, um, you know, absolutely fine, 99.99999% of the time, and you scale it up to 7 billion people or whatever, you know, you're, there's going to be quite a lot of stories of people who are impacted by that. But so for me, I think the way out of that, the way out of that tension between who should have the last say so, is um, it's about the way that we build the technology. I think that a lot of examples of technology, particularly in the last decade, have been about building something that works and then expecting the human to sort of fit in in the background and be the emergency brake, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the case of driverless cars where humans are literally the emergency brake. and. Uh, I think that's not really a situation that's ever gonna end well. Whereas I think that if instead you start with your human and you start with the things that the human can do and is good at, and the things that the human can't do and is deeply flawed at, and you create your technology to fit into the mistakes that humans make, I think you actually end up with a much better situation. So in the case of driverless cars, like having this sort of automatic guardianship rather than expecting to jump straight ahead to full automation. Or um, another really famous example that people have uh, been arguing about a lot is that of judges and uh, AI being used in the courtroom to try and make predictions about who will go on to commit another crime in future. And I think in that situation, if you create, create an AI and expect a human to catch all of its mistakes, it's just never really going to work that well. Whereas I think if you have the human in the driving seat and you've got an AI that's trying to highlight the... Inherent biases in the human to highlight the inconsistencies in the human decisions, I think actually that's a much better potential partnership.
0: Yeah, so taking that point about the the human role, um, obviously for all the reasons that you've set out, that we appreciate there's tremendous opportunity of the use of the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and so on, and a lot of organisations, both private and public sector, who are. desperate almost to to harness those opportunities, either for competitive reasons or or Mm. otherwise. And we can see that there are some guardrails being imposed by things like the requirements of privacy by design, which is coming in through the um, privacy legislation, and now new regulations from the European Union about constraints in terms of the way that um, uh, artificial intelligence can be applied and in what context. to what extent do you think, from your perspective, that this can be entrusted to regulators and governments as opposed to organizations who are actually creating the AI, or is it even just in the hands of the individuals? I mean, where do you think the greatest hope lies for us in terms of trying to make sure that AI is applied in the, uh, in the best way possible?
1: I like how you said it. There is greatest hope, so that
0: <laughs> <laughs> not the only, not the only hope.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I think right now at this moment, I uh, struggle to be that hopeful about regulation. I think that we are um, in a situation where we have power concentrated in us in a handful of very large companies who span international ra- boundaries, and I think that does make it incredibly difficult for you to introduce effective regulation so i wouldn't say i was optimistic in that regard Um, simultaneously i think in terms of an individual i think it's very difficult to have much autonomy um, and and sort of power in any of this i remember i was researching my book so this is like a couple of years ago now and um i went to uh i went to something that was called a crypto party which um, sounds a lot more fun than it was. <laughs> 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 so, at a crypto party—you essentially go and learn how to protect your own privacy when, uh, when searching online, when you know, when doing anything, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of it was kind of obvious, like ad trackers and and you know, using the dark web, that sort of thing. But some of the lengths that people in that room were willing to go to was pretty extraordinary. So there was one in particular I remember. Um, someone had created a type of operating system that lived on a USB stick. And it, when you pulled it out from a computer, all trace of your existence just completely disappeared with the, you know, with. Wow. And you essentially reinstalled an, an entire operating system every time you plugged this thing in. And I think that actually what I found really st- startling on that evening was, well, the lens that people had to go to to avoid being tracked um <laughs> you know how much they had to I guess forego the things that the rest of us are, are quite willing to partake in how much you have to remove yourself from society but I also thought while I was there as I was looking around all these people I mean you didn't exactly have name badges right
0: <laughs> <laughs> we well, would kind of defeat the purpose wouldn't it <laughs>
1: um I found myself looking around and I couldn't help it I was like what do these people have to hide? But, but I also think that that's kind of strange that we're so far down this road that actually to want to be able to have some autonomy about your own information, um, you know, you, you, it, it means drawing suspicion. I think that's kind of pretty yeah. extraordinary.
0: Well, the fact that there's no longer this is, well, I suppose on one side, we have this it's very strong legal, legally enshrined right to privacy and yet everything about the use of technology in society suggests that that is being worn away and yet never the twain shall meet we certainly we see lots of implications of that in the way that companies want to use the technology that's available to them but it's almost a case of saying well just because you can doesn't Mm -hmm. mean necessarily that you should Uh, and there's there's plenty of examples of that i'm sure
1: oh that's such a good point i think you're absolutely right on that one I think it's like, (laughs) I mean, I'm the same, right? You know, I'm an academic who handles data around human behavior. And there are times where um, I'm thinking in particular of one project, um, which my PhD student conducted where she had um, a mobile phone, I mean, basically mobile phone trackers on people. It was all above board, you know, we didn't sort of break any rules. but it pinged people's location. We recorded people's location every three minutes um, over a period of time. This is pre-GDPR days, I should tell you. Mm. Um, and what it meant was that when there were terror attacks on London Bridge um, and on Westminster Bridge, we knew how the crowd reacted, right? We could analyze that and study it. And we could compare it to something like Oxford Circus where there was uh, an incident um, in that tube station, where people th- thought that there was a terror attack and there was panic, but it wasn't real. It was sort of, uh, it, it was a situation that escalated and got out of hand, but it was never any real threat.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: can look at how real panic changes people's behaviour in a way that art- artificial panic doesn't. That is such a sophisticated project, right? You, I mean, I you you dream of having data sets like that. It's so. The detail that you get about who we are and how we behave is so extraordinary. But I also feel like, you know, I can't like claim to be this like lofty person who is like, no, 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 no data. You know, there shouldn't be any data. But at the same time, I really recognize that we are, we've lived through this period where companies have basically been like hoarders right like you know they're sort of like these dragons sitting on their piles of treasure being like just give me more and more and more and more more, without ever knowing whether they're going to use it or um whether it is of any use whatsoever and um i just yeah i mean i i think that that's is going to change surely i think the pressure will change but i think we've started to see this actually this is definitely the last couple of years i've really noticed companies starting to use privacy as a marketing uh tool you know essentially as like um as a way to make their products appear more um more valuable to the to the customer i think that's a very interesting shift actually yeah yeah
0: we're you know, using pri- privacy as a differentiator but in a positive way I think it certainly something that we see but taking that on another stage in terms of uh, of using what we've seen now as an example of what may be to come there have been some people who have said that um, what we've gone through recently in COVID-19 it was almost like a dress rehearsal for other challenges that we're going to face as a society with you know climate change being the uh, the obvious example and yeah, the, the recent uh, heat wave in North America is a frightening precursor of what may be ahead for us as a society in the, the years to come. And obviously, technology and the use of data and the use of AI has been a, a, a great help in terms of the way that we have reacted to COVID-19 and found our ways through it in terms of the way, the, the speed of the research that's been done, the, the manipulation of data to help with modelling of the way that we should react and so on. But to what extent do you think that tech, those self-same technologies, the self-same techniques and realization of the power of data could be at the core of the way that we react to some of these other upcoming challenges with climate change being the uh, the obvious one?
1: Yeah, that's such a such a good question. I, I sort of think that, um, well, I think one of the big things that I saw that I noticed uh, particularly early on when everyone was very concerned, where when the pandemic was really the only thing that people could think about, what I really noticed was a lot of scientific institutions trying to connect the dots. There were initially like a big flurry of activity, you know, Go- Google mobility data was really helping us to understand the impact that lockdowns were having. Um, you know there was like lots of these little or or the NHS test and trace app you know about the number of connections with other individuals, there were lots of these little things that were trying to preserve people's privacy, um, while simultaneously trying to sort of advance uh, advance, uh, our understanding about the pandemic, and I still think that there's this real tension actually like what was done in South Korea where it was, you know, everything was connected, right? So like you use your bank card in an ATM Mm. and then get in a taxi and and everything is joined up. And I know that there's still sort of an ickiness about that, um, certainly within the UK, uh, and I think in America too, about that idea that you would would be able to use that data even in a situation such as um, a pandemic. But I think the really positive story uh, that I think will persist is really what happened right at that beginning when everybody was really concerned about it. Because institutions like um, the Royal Society, who saw that there were these really disparate projects where people were using their own data sources, recognized this opportunity to start joining things up together. um, And I guess connecting up different people's expertise. So things like, um, you know, in a supermarket, uh, having people who are crowd specialists, right? Because uh, there are people who, who spend their entire lives like modeling the movement of a crowd and trying to like work out optimal flows through yeah. things. Um, but connecting up those people with uh, individuals who are maybe uh, fluid dynamicists and look at the way that air flows and through a sort of air conditioning system um, within a supermarket. And then maybe simultaneously, I don't know, connecting that up with uh, town planners who understand, um, you know, how there are resources spread out across a town and how there might be uh, some areas which require a little bit more support in terms of getting hold of groceries. I think that um, that was the really positive thing for me was was, was noticing that these distinct boundaries of, of scientific understanding based on data Um, were no longer in their silos it was really about joining them up and I think that when it comes to something like climate change um, I hope that the urgency is there while it's still possible to make that that difference but I think that you really need that connected up approach Um, you know I I, I think that everybody tackling their own thing individually is not going to make the same impact that we had with this sort of almost warlike strategy of the last uh, of the last couple of years, everybody trying to head in the same direction.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've benefited from a, a, an incredibly diverse um, background and people that you've interacted with from academics in multiple different fields, it physics, geography, maths, et cetera, um, as well as architects and geographers, people obviously involved with city planning, all the way through to fluid dyna- dynamicists, if that is the word. Um, I think you work with Formula One, which is exciting for all of us petrol heads out there. So, with all of those different sectors, all those different um, areas that you've been involved with and which you've been able to, to assist with in terms of their analysis of data. Um, if you were to pick out areas which you think are particularly um, prone to disruption now as we move into this year or continue to move through to industry 4.0, digital transformation, whatever you want to call it, where do you think the, the greatest change is going to come? And is it, as many people say, retail? Although Maybe that's an, a bit of an old story now. Or are there other areas yet which perhaps are more subtly impacted?
1: So I think for me, I think it's the ones that have sort of um, traditionally been left behind a little bit. Um, so there's there's sort of a bigger gap, a bigger technological gap for them um, to jump across. So I really like the tech in farming. I think it's amazing. There's lots of really exciting stuff. There's also um, actually uh, in sort of the public sector, there's this amazing project um, that is uh trying to bring tech to firefighters so if you think about it i mean if there's one area that's really been left behind by technology it's it's firefighters i mean they're still there with a clipboard and a walkie-talkie right which is the same technology Mm -hmm. they had in what early 90s i mean maybe even earlier so there's um there's one project uh where they're trying to use machine vision to improve the visibility of firefighters as they are in a a smoke-filled environment. So I think some firefighters actually, when they enter a really smoky building, they're taught to close their eyes just to heighten their other senses because the visibility is so terrible. And they have kind of infrared cameras, but like they're really bulky and you sort of have to sit and hold them up. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, if you're in a hot environment and with big gloves on, it's just not really reasonable. So this one project it uses infrared uh, um, vision or infrared cameras and then uh, machine vision to project the outlines of objects onto the inside of the visor of a firefighter. So when they're in a building, they can kind of look around and say, "Okay, there's um, a person over there. There's stairs over there. You know, there's a fire over there." And, uh, yeah, make like a, a an enormous difference to how quickly they can navigate through a building, which I think is like this really profound shift.
0: And say so it was to really save lives in the very literal sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely. So, I mean, I I, I, I had the opportunity to speak to the founder of this company, this guy called Sam Cosman. Um, and he was saying that like the number of times, really, like real, really, really tragic, the number of times when firefighters... Have run out of air while trying to find their way out of a building, um, just because they can't see. Just because they can't see. Yeah. He told me a story about one one of his uh, one firefighter who was, you know, literally feet from the door and just didn't know it was there, and um, and very tragically ran out of air. Yeah. And, and having this kind of technology will really, I mean, just make a massive difference to those. That, yeah, whatever well, every
0: single life saved is worth the investment, isn't it? Yeah. Well. Um, Obviously, you know, the, the summit um, theme that we have coming up in October is all about um, you know, technology as an enabler of resilience as we come out of uh, these pandemic times and hopefully into sunnier climes in the future. But when we we read about technology, either in um, the press or through books or people that we hear talking about it, quite often there's quite starkly opposed views. There's those who have a rather dystopian view of technology and rather negative connotations about what impact it will have upon our daily lives and the loss of control of individuals and so on and then others who have a, a far more positive view and talk about the enablement of technology how it's, it will you know free us up from the drudgery of tasks and give us you know, more time for more artistic and positive pursuits so that's much far more of a utopian view do you think i mean it's Half of this may come down to whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person. But do you think either one of those views is more or less likely to be the truth in practice, or are we inevitably going to have a mix of both? And perhaps as a follow on question for that, might be is there anything you think that we could be doing now to trend us towards more of the utopian view rather than the dystopian one?
1: I think that okay, I feel positive about how the conversation has really started to focus on the people who are left out um, of the equation really. I think, I think that's, that is at the forefront of people's minds at the moment in conversations about algorithms and about data. And that doesn't mean that it's even close to being anything like fixed or ever will be, let's be honest. Yeah. But I do think, I do feel positive that actually this is genuinely something that people care about and I think it tends to happen that when people really care about something it does make a change for the better even if it takes quite a long time. Um, I think that the main thing for me and like maybe I'm using optimism as a coping strategy that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a <an> possibility there. <laughs> I think the main thing for me is that we are at a point in history when the biggest Problems that face humanity, like climate change, like pandemics, like um, access to clean water, uh, the, the, the plastic waste, all of these problems are essentially scientific questions. And I think that because of that, we are in a position where data and AI and technology genuinely can make a humanity-changing impact. Um, not saying it's going to be easy and not saying that there won't be terrible stuff too along the way. But I think that's the reason why I remain overall quite positive about uh, about this space.
0: So t- that optimistic note in, fr- in mind, mm. for all the people who will be coming along um, virtually to the summit in October, if you could pick one thing that you would want them to be able to, to leave that summit with in their mind, to re- reflect that optimistic spirit going forward what do you think it would be
1: okay so i mean i think the one thing i'm going to say is actually i think it's generally a lesson for life <laughs> getting a bit profound here aren't i like i've done, a- <laughs> I've done the meaning of life now I've done the biggest life lesson okay so i sort of think that a lot of the problems that we've had in the last whatever however long maybe decade have been that Um, people imagine data and AI and technology to be this magical machine that does what it says on the tin and manages to do so every single time and I think that whenever it's fallen short of that people have got gotten obsessed with really tiny marginal incremental increases or improvements on the performance of these things rather than actually recognizing that they're never going to be perfect and maybe making them easier to appeal right than like than just like obsessing over perfection so i think the one thing that is really important as we move forward um is this idea of like intellectual humility so like not having arrogant computer scientists and mathematicians telling us how the world should look um and like not having sort of this this Um, these flawed machines uh, dictating uh, decisions for individuals. I think it's about recognizing that this is a very, very messy world, Um, perfection is impossible, and there is no finish line when it comes to sort of bias or fairness Mm -hmm. or performance of these things. And actually, it's about having the humility to continually work towards improving them rather than sitting back and basking in the glory of what's already been created.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Hannah, that's a fantastic note for us to end on. And I'm sure one that we'll be able to expand on when we come to the the, uh, the summit in October. So I very much look forward to your keynote then. I think it'll be a fantastic day.
1: Oh, Thank you very much. Kate. I'm very much looking forward to it.